a prayer before study. Ineffable creator, who from the treasures of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill. You are proclaimed the true font of light and wisdom, and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of my mind. Disperse from my soul the twofold darkness into which I was born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants. Refine my speech and pour forth upon my lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to me keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live and reign, world without end. Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist and total word nerd who got so obsessed with names in middle school that I used to scooter endless circles on my driveway meditating upon the meanings of names. It's true. We're now on the new bi-weekly schedule, and as a word nerd, I really hate that bi-weekly can mean either twice a week or every other week horribly confusing, this blog is doing the latter. In college, I reignited my passion for old books and obscure meanings of English words when I took a class on the history of the English language as a junior. The professor was this really mean old man, and he gave these horrifically difficult tests. Most of the questions were from the textbook's footnotes. I worked really hard, and I got a B, (laughs) the only B that I got in my English major. Yet, I fell in love with it. It was endlessly fascinating to think about the origins and histories of spoken and written languages. In that class, the final assignment was to write a full essay I think it was like five pages, if I recall, on the history of one word, a single word, whatever word we pleased. I wanted to choose an ancient English word with beginnings shrouded in the mists of time, where you really had to rummage around in old English dictionaries, probably unopened for 30 years, in the unattractive 1970s University of Arizona library. What word did I choose? I chose the word whole. (laughs) W-H-O-L-E. I can almost imagine your crestfallen face. The whole dictionary before me, and I chose such a random, even boring word. But as a word, it felt super old to me, crumbling around its edges, heavy laden with the past. I wanted to know where that W came from. It was also a word with intriguing significance and heft, 
upon which I wish to think more seriously. More on that in a minute. Have you ever wondered why many languages have similar sounding words for mother despite all their differences? Mother, madre, matri, mater, mother, mutter. The list could go on and on. What's happening here? Many of these languages have very few vocabulary words in common overall. In that list I just quoted, I've included words for mother from different parts of Europe and India. This is because scholars of word history theorize that these differing languages all share a common, super old root language referred to by scholars as Indo-European from far, far back in time to even before Sanskrit which is 4,000 to 6,000 years old. Sanskrit is the language that the, a lot of um, the Hindu religious um, sacred texts were written in. We can still notice some of these languages' common origins through these similar-sounding words like mother in very different regions and languages. Like a dinosaur bone found underneath a mall parking lot, Some words that we use casually today contain surprisingly ancient components. I love this about language. It's one of the main reasons why I originally became a medievalist. English is full of mysteries and wonders. We can find similarities in English between words as well. Whole is one of these fascinating fossil words. It stems from an Indo-European root, something similar to hal. Though, of course, that's an educated guess since we don't have any recordings or written Indo-European from thousands and thousands of years ago. From hal stems many words, whole itself, as I mentioned, but also health, heal, and hail, H-A-L-E, like in the old saying, hail and hearty. The word hail, H-A-I-L, not as in the weather, but as in hail to the king, also springs from this ancient word well. Hail to the king is to respect and honor the king by wishing him wholeness and health. And finally, holy belongs to this word family. Something that I really like about these word games of origins and roots is that they can help us to conceptualize the meanings and the reach of these words more clearly than before. Words and their meanings become enriched and expanded as we consider their histories and their relationships to other words. I mean, even though whole and holy sound alike, you wouldn't necessarily associate them together, and certainly not whole and health. To be whole means not only to have all parts of a whole, or to avoid fragmentation. It includes health in body and mind, to be hale and hearty, strong. Wholeness even, or especially, entails holiness, that particular wholeness of spirit. Considering the interrelationships between these words can help address some disputes among Christians today. Conservative Christians often focus on the wholeness of the spirit, holiness, at the expense of the wholeness of the body or the mind. It's not a social justice church. I recently heard one person reassure another who was thinking about visiting their church. 
But to care for another person's broken or oppressed body undeniably belongs to Jesus' project of wholeness that he preaches in the Gospels. On the other hand, liberal Christians can easily forget wholeness of spirit in their zeal to help heal bodies and minds alienated and wounded by the church. They can sometimes treat kindness, acceptance, or activism as an adequate substitute for spiritual healing through Jesus, rather than the very important components that these are in the project of a whole life. Both these emphases are worthy, and they require one another in our pursuit of the kingdom of heaven. We damage ourselves and other people, splintering our own projects aimed at wholeness when we separate holiness and mental and bodily health. The word whole reminds us through its ancient DNA that we need all these kinds of health for true wholeness. To be whole, who wouldn't want that? As humans, each of us, we are all fragmented people living in shattered societies. You don't have to look very far to see that. Sometimes our brokenness is advanced by our society as we are encouraged or forced to suppress certain aspects of the wholeness of our beings in order to better assimilate into whatever space in which we dwell at that moment. The poet Audre Lorde wrote in Sister Outsider, Essays and Speeches, I find I am constantly being encouraged to pluck out some one aspect of myself and present this as the meaningful whole, eclipsing or denying the other parts of self. Perhaps you can relate. I know I do. I often feel, especially as a woman, that I am hiding one part of myself while another part is on display. I mother separately from my teaching. Heaven forbid the two mingle. I was actually fired from an adjunct teaching job on account of my pregnancy. Yes, in this day and age, that still happens. Academia told me in many more subtle ways that being a mother was incompatible with being a serious scholar. Yet I've always known that I wanted to be both a mom and a serious student and teacher of the past. How can I reconcile these bits of myself and my personal struggles to unite these disparate aspects of myself are less onerous, less dangerous than the identity battles regularly faced by LGBTQ plus friends, people of color, or the impoverished, as Audre Lorde herself knew as a black lesbian woman. We can say, with the church on the left, that such individual wholeness, such uh, repudiating these false social divisions is worth working toward wholeheartedly as a society. We can also say with the more conservative viewpoint that we do that even while we recognize its ultimate unattainability in this life. St. Augustine of Hippo, the fantastic 4th century bishop and theologian, wrote more than perhaps any other medieval or ancient writer about our fragmentation. He understood full, holy wholeness as unreachable because of our existence as creatures dwelling in time. Augustine's theories of being in time are complicated, and I won't go fully into them here. But in simple terms, 
we can never gather ourselves all together, all at once as individuals. Parts of us are in the past. Some of us wish to go back to the past when we lived close to friends, when we didn't need to wear a mask in public, before a beloved person died. Parts of us are in the future, in the form of our hopes and dreams for a better life, for our fulfillment. Some of us yearn for that future. Those of you wishing for children, but no pregnancy yet. Waiting for that better job that you've worked so hard for. Even just those of us waiting for the kids to be older so that we can finally go to the bathroom alone. Carpe diem, we hear. Seize the day. Live in the present. But it's so hard. And parts of us are irretrievably bound up in the past or the future. We are never entirely present all at once, all of the pieces of us united. This isn't even always bad. To take my earlier example of teacher and scholar and mother, I wouldn't be a very good teacher if I was trying to simultaneously wrangle a three-year-old while teaching. I wouldn't be a very good mother if I was trying to describe Augustine to a class while my five-year-old seeks me out to talk because she has a conflict with another student at kindergarten. Being in the world and being holy yourself is impossible due to simple chronology as well as what I previously mentioned about prejudice and societal pressures. Augustine uses the simile of a person singing in order to simply describe what he calls distension in time. Even in the moment of song, a person's brain is rapidly working ahead between placing himself, anticipating the next sound and line, and remembering what came before. Sentences require the same effort. If you think about it, no single word coexists at the same moment in time in your sentence. Yeah, God is completely different. Augustine writes in the marvelous translation by Maria Bolding. When a person is singing words well known to him or listening to a familiar song, his senses are strained between anticipating sounds still to come and remembering those sung already. But with you... It's quite otherwise. Nothing can happen to you in your unchangeable eternity. You who are truly the eternal creator of all minds. As you knew heaven and earth in the beginning, without the slightest modification in your knowledge, so too you made heaven and earth in the beginning without any distension in your activity. From the Confessions. Book 11, 31, 41. This is a profound comfort to me. What Augustine calls distension, what God lacks, but what we are never without, can become a burden to us. As we stretch forward and stretch backward, we try so hard to control what has come before us or what is coming next, and we so often cannot. We try so hard to control our past selves, our present selves, and our future selves, but we're not even really capable of controlling the vast mystery of ourselves. Augustine gives us a prayer when we feel swallowed up by time, fragmented, unsure what to do next, how our past defines us, how to act in our present moment. 
Now as my years waste away amid groaning, you are my solace, Lord, because you are my Father, and you are eternal. I have leapt down into the flux of time where all is confusion to me. In the most intimate depths of my soul, my thoughts are torn to fragments by tempestuous changes. Until that time when I flow into you, purged and rendered molten by the fire of your love. From the Confessions, 11, 29, 39. As a lava flow melts disparate, separate rocks and pebbles, we become a molten hole in the fiery baptism of God's eternal love. Wholeness does await us when we meet eternity. We pray this prayer in the meantime, perhaps. But until then, let us seek wholeness together and encourage all its varieties in one another in the tension of our present disunity as individuals and as people. Next time you toast, drink to one another's health. You can use the ancient term hail, H-A-I-L, as you lift your glass, remembering its depth and interconnections between spiritual and bodily, mental and total wholeness. And by the way, why does whole have a W? Apparently, some people strangely pronounced it that way in England for a while, and it lingers on as a completely useless artifact of the bizarre pronunciation wool. Wool. <laughs> I can't even say it. It sounds so weird. So we go from whole to wool and back to whole. There you go. It was likely more satisfying as a mystery, that W. I hope you enjoyed this journey into word origins with me. Share with a friend if you feel so inclined. Also, feel free to let me know what you think at oldbookswithgrace.com, where the text of this podcast is, or oldbookswithgrace at gmail.com. I love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.